guest today is the incredibly talented musician and producer who has been in a long list of bands over the last 30 years or so. He has toured and or recorded with Motor Goat, Heat Miser, Quasi, John Spencer and the Hitmakers, J.D. Pincus from the Butthole Surfers, and the late Elliot Smith. In addition to playing many instruments and writing songs, he has also scored several films by Portland filmmaker Vanessa Renwick. He has been an integral part of the Portland music scene, and I'm so grateful I got to spend some time with him. Here is my friend, Sam Coombs. First of all, I wanted to ask you about La Luna and the whole scene there in the early 90s, mid-90s, because I have two friends who were bouncers at La Luna and have heard tons of stories from them, and it's super fascinating to me how it seems like, I mean, that in as well as the entire scene, but it seemed like that club had a lot to do with really kind of propelling a bunch of different people. Those two guys that were bouncers, they ended up becoming, uh, uh, one guy became guitar tech for Art, Alex Hawkins in Everclear. Uh, the other guy did some touring with Tenacious D. Like their entire crew like got involved with the Foo Fighters. Like all these guys kind of came up in through that spot. And so I've been doing research on La Luna and learning about it. And it seems like it was such a cool situation where you could have all these bands. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I read that it was a dollar a person on Monday nights. Is that right? That's true. Uh, I don't know if they did that throughout the existence of the club, but they, for a while, there were these dollar nights that... uh, yeah, they were they were important for the scene, which was much smaller in those days, and um, the clo- local bands. It was local, all local bands, and it was one dollar, and the place would sell out quite quite frequently for local bands that nobody knew about outside of town and maybe even people in town didn't know that much about. And so what was the draw? Why why would why did it become so popular if they were just local bands? Well, they were good local bands. The the booking agent was, you know, used discrimination. <laughs> and uh people realized that that was a very cheap way to go have a good time and maybe see some some local band and there was a, I'm a, I forgot to turn my phone off. Oh, no worries. This is going to be a problem if later on, if I don't do it now. Let's, let's rewind a little bit because I, I first moved to Portland in 1989 and I was in a, I didn't know anybody in Portland except for these guys in a band called the Dharma Bums, which my band, I lived in San Francisco. And my band played a a show with them in, I think it was in Davis, California. And we were both just like little bands. We, I remember playing this show in Davis and I don't know, you know, a couple dozen people were there. And... And I was talking to the guys and, uh, you know, I'm kind of getting sick of San Francisco. I, I, I think I need a change. And they're come to Portland. Portland, I, uh, I never really think about it. But a little bit later, I just kind of cruised up 
to check it out and they're like, oh yeah, we're, we're playing this place, the Pine Street Theater, come on down. And um, okay, I go to the Pine Street Theater, which is in the space that La Luna eventually became. Mm-hmm. And the Dharma Bums, I think had sold it out and they were, and, and people were going nuts. Like they were the Beatles, you know, <laughs> like I thought, wow. Cause it's one of the problems I had living in San Francisco is it seemed like people didn't really care about local bands at all. You could play for years, put out albums and you know, your best hope would be opening up for some other touring band. Like yeah. people would come in and go see touring bands, but local bands were not taken seriously. But here, in those days, Portland was still a little bit of a backwater, and they and there was like a local pride. Like we're not, we're not fancy like like California and like Seattle is becoming. We're just we got to like take care of ourselves. So there was a scene already kind of. There was a store downtown called Locals Only that sold only local bands. A whole store. Vinyl and, and, and CDs vinyl, and stuff? Vinyl, CDs, tapes, not CDs. Yeah, I guess CDs. Um, that was like, you know, we're talking about late 80s, early 90s when CDs were less popular than, than LPs and tapes. So that was the main thing they had there. And, um, I mean, you could just record your band a little tape uh, in your basement take it to this store locals only and they would sell it and people would buy it. That's cool. So that's the context, you know, Pine Street Theater uh, changed owners or whatever happened and they became La Luna. And um, uh, yeah, Portland did have a vibrant local scene. People cared about the, uh, about the local bands and uh, instead of poo-pooing the, the, the the yokels they really wanted to support bands that were from here well yeah and this was this was post grunge right no this was maybe yeah i guess post the beginning of grunge but it was like right in the middle of grunge really yeah and i mean it was kind of an interesting situation wasn't it before nirvana got signed and everything like that it was still really i mean and portland wasn't so so much grunge, grunge like Seattle. Uh, there were maybe a few bands like that, but it was a more varied um, scene. Yeah, well, it's just interesting to me because when Nirvana broke, then it's like everybody was trying to find the next Nirvana. And the, it doesn't seem like popular culture was bands, you know, through for for a very long time, and it doesn't seem so much that way anymore. But in the early '90s, you know, coming off all the '80s butt rock and fucking Guns and Roses and everything, then you get into grunge and everything that started to happen. It permeated pop culture. It was a part of everything, and it doesn't seem that way anymore so much. You know, it's more about like hip hop and R and B, and and various other types of music. And it's so cool to me to look back on that time period and try to understand what that felt like. And, I mean, you were a part of that. Maybe not grunge as, as that term, but you were a part of everything else that was happening, right? Sure. You know, just that's just the, the grunge was kind of the last gasp of, of um, you know, the, the linear cultural you know, rock and roll 
w- had for a long time been one of one, a big driver of the culture and a big it informed the culture in an important way uh, and it, and the culture kind of they called it you know you had mainstream culture and because it was sort of linear it would move in a in a particular direction mm-hmm. and evolve uh, but the internet took that all away and it's now it's just dissipated there isn't any kind of a linear you know digital stuff is all non-linear yeah well and the advent of the internet and youtube made it possible for anybody to record and release something but it it's all just there's too much and back then Throughout, I mean, through the the 40s, 50s, all the way up until probably like 98, 99, 2000, there was a a certain channel you had to go through to get discovered or to get people to figure out who you were, right? It's just different now because the internet. Sure. Yeah. You couldn't. Yeah. There was, I mean, for a lot of people in my generation, it was, it's been, and, and it continues to be a struggle in some ways because... We, we had, there was a, there was a model that we tried to master where, you know, you would, you would get in a band, you would write some songs, you would practice, you would get really good. You'd start playing local shows, you'd build up an audience, you know, there was like this progression and then people would start to notice you pretty soon. You would be doing interviews like this, except it wasn't, you know. It would just be in the newspaper yeah. or the magazine. Um, and then all that just went away. And, you and uh, you know, it, I was thinking about it kind of recently because uh, my, my, my daughter was talking about a friend of hers that um, has been working as an intern um, Essentially, as a as a promoter, I guess it's still it's still called a promoter, but promoters don't actually promote anymore. Mm-hmm. They they just organize. Uh, bands have to promote themselves. Uh, in the in the old days, you know, you, you would book a gig, and the promoter would hire somebody to make posters and put posters up, and would take ads out in the you know that was kind of their job to promote the show to get people down there. That that's really not doesn't happen much anymore. Mm-hmm. So, but they're still called promoters. It's a, it's a vestige <laughs> of the past. Yeah. But um, yeah, so there was a, there was a model that we all sort of, and you know, it was, it was a path that was kind of laid out that you could, that you could take. It, it wasn't necessarily an easy path. There was all sorts of pitfalls, but you, you could see it ahead of you and try and go in that direction. And now it's kind of like, it's all over the place. He's winging it. <sighs> Yeah, so I'm I'm trying to put myself in that in that perspective in that uh, that time frame. In order to uh, to promote yourself, you would just write songs, get gigs. People would show up. They would like you. They would tell your friends. They could go to locals only and get your vinyl or your uh, your cassette. And to me, it's just like a cooler way of spreading what you enjoy now you just send a fucking link you're just like boop it i think it is in my opinion it's cooler (laughs) also uh and it's a it, it cultivated a more passionate audience because 
uh, if you liked music, if you liked a specific band, say, uh, your chance to interact with that band was either to go sh to a show or buy their record. Those are that's it. You might they might get an article written about them in a zine or something like that, maybe or maybe not. You couldn't just access them twenty four seven. You couldn't write a message and then get pissed off because like oh they didn't write back <laughs> on their social media. Yeah, right. What they're well, they're too good for me. <laughs> it was just like so you you got excited when the band came to town. That was your one chance you're going to have to see them during the year. Maybe some bands toured twice a fall and a spring tour. And um, so everybody who was into that band went down there and went went bananas. Um, and now, you know, people are like, eh, I'd rather just stay home. I, I can just watch them on YouTube. Or, you know, people... People already yeah. posted the set list. I know what songs they're going to play. Mm -hmm. you know? <laughs> so there was a more passionate f fan base and a more passionate ex experience in those days, I think. Mm -hmm. Well, in the camaraderie, you must have felt uh, playing with all those people. I mean, it seems like it would have just been a community of people between the fans and the bands and the bands and the bands. Like every, It seemed like everybody just would have been a collective. Well, that was the... That was the punk rock ethos, really. Yeah. Um, which, you know, some of that is still around today. Um, but again, it's a, it's just a less, it's a less with less intensity than than in those days. Mm -hmm. So in '91, is that kind of when you started playing? I mean, you said '89, '90 in Portland. Uh, yeah, you know, I I can't remember. It would have been. The first band probably started around 90, 91. Okay. And you could feel that playing at these these clubs in Portland. You could tell something was happening, yeah? Well, you know, like I said, in contrast to my experience uh, when I lived in San Francisco, it seemed like my band was never going to get anywhere. But here, it did seem like you could build an audience and people would take you more, more seriously just as a local band. So, um, yeah, I, it, it, it didn't seem, in retrospect, you look back on it and you think, oh, that's special. But um, at that time, it just seemed normal. Hmm. Just seemed normal. And were you making enough weekly where you didn't have to have a day job or <laughs> no, were you still no. working all the time? <laughs> no, no. Yeah. No, I mean, there's, even now, um, well, I've been very lucky and that I haven't had to uh, take full-on, you know, time clock punching jobs for, for many years. But, you know, the it, I don't make enough income strictly from touring. and Yeah. To, yeah, there's always little side hustles. Yeah, it's tough. Tough when you're art is the thing that you live for and, and you're trying to, to pay bills with it. Well, I can't complain. I, there were a number of years where I, where I did nothing but tour and record and, and was, you know, I thought I had it made in the shade. Yeah. <laughs> Those, yeah. They went away. You yeah. Know, the internet again took that all away because, <laughs> uh, you know, streaming, you, you don't really make any money at all. Um, the CDs, I know people don't like CDs anymore which in some ways is great because I just bought this uh, 
like a Stax 9 CD box set in like mint condition for 40 bucks. It's got like over 200 songs on it and nobody likes CDs. So the people are just trying to get rid of them. Uh, but CDs for artists were, um, they were great, <laughs> really, as a financial uh, model um, because uh, every CD, depending on the nature of your deal and how much you spent recording it and so forth, but you could make as much as five bucks, but you were probably making like two, three, four bucks per CD <clears throat> straight to the band. Yeah. Do you want to explain that to anybody listening, what it's like when you get when you cut some sort of record deal, did you get advances to uh, to to finance the recording? Well, in the CD era, that was common because you could pretty much count on recouping the investment. Um, if if you if your band had a had an audience and a following, um, if you didn't and you were starting out, you would self finance, of course. Um, so you would get an advance typically, well, here's, here's the, the, the punk rock model that, um, we tried to work with, uh, and manage to work with, with most of our records, a label gives you X amount of money. You deliver a record. They take, uh, X from, uh, all the sales until that's recouped and then 50 50 split of everything after that afterwards so um yeah so say you you know all in manufacturing and everything costs 10 grand cds cost uh you know in those days say they cost 12 13 bucks but um so if you sell 1000 um, you're recouped, right? And then, you know, we used to call, but we used to sell, you know, between five and 10,000. Mm -hmm. So you're making all this money. Um, it was kind of nice. <laughs> <laughs> that just went away. <laughs> and tech was it's like, hey, nice. you guys like music? We'll, we'll take that. Yeah. And yeah. now it's gone. You know, they pay pennies on the, you know, on the dollar now. Yeah, and there are different contracts that have been signed by different people uh, throughout the years. I know the Beatles infam infamously got fucked because Brian Epstein signed something with, uh, I believe they were called Northern Songs. And people didn't understand publishing rights back then, and so the Beatles barely made any money. And they didn't own their actual recordings uh, for a very long time. Uh, and then another great case is the the Backstreet Boys, who I forget what their manager's name was, but uh, he, I believe he managed the Backstreet Boys and NSYNC, and those guys were fucking selling insane amounts of records, and they were getting checks for like ten, twenty grand or whatever. Yeah. Well, of course, the you know those are very different situations because. NSYNC and Backstreet Boys were just performers. They didn't write the songs. They just were, you know, they went out and performed and people wanted to see that. That mm -hmm. was a valuable thing. But the Beatles, I'm not sure that they didn't make a lot of money. I seem to remember seeing pictures of them in their 
mansions with Rolls Royces and stuff. <laughs> they they did make money, but I believe it was from touring and other things. But their yeah, their catalog, be uh, because uh, Michael Jack, it, the Beatles catalog went for sale in the eighties, and Paul McCartney was at the auction trying to buy back their music, yeah, and Michael yeah. Jackson and Sony ATV outbid him. And him and Michael Jackson were friends, and after that, he he didn't like him anymore, because Michael Jackson bought their fucking catalog and then sold it to Target, and you know that's why I hear Beatles songs on tar- Target commercials. Well, yep. So yeah. th- I mean, the... I, I don't have a lot of tears for Paul, but you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think he's doing all right. Yeah, I things kind of, but yeah, I could see why we'd be aggravated. Yeah, it's a weird scenario when you are responsible for creating some form of art and then you don't get to own it or make money off of it. And because you signed a piece of paper with the wrong words in it, someone else is making all that money. It's kind of a weird situation. Well, yeah, I mean, I have, I was in a band, uh, Heat Miser, and we were not a popular band by any means. I didn't write the songs for Heat Miser, so I'm only peripherally involved in in this particular situation. But um, the our final record, uh, we, the, uh, they did get a publishing deal. The writers, uh, Neil Gust and Elliot Smith, and um, and it's owned by Universal, I believe, and. Um, in the years since, the band's become more popular because of the popularity of, of Elliot. And uh, so recently, there was interest in reissuing this record. It's been out of print for many years, and people want to hear it. Um, and Universal basically blocks that because they're egregious terms uh, as who they own the publishing. And... Wouldn't they want to make money off of it? You would think so, but uh, they want to make all the money off of it. <laughs> oh, because you and Neil stand to make money? Uh, I don't really. Uh, I, I think maybe I would get some minor royalty as a as a performer. Uh-huh. Uh, Neil would stand to make some money um, from publishing, except... Universal controls it and they won't allow it except, you know, if they make all the money, basically. Mm-hmm. I mean, and they, they, they're not, you know, they, they're not musicians. They're not fans. They're strictly money people. Yeah. I was so just... like they're on, they like the record. They're only in it for the money. Mm-hmm. So they're not going to take less money. And so the record is either permanently or indefinitely on on hold from being reissued strictly because of, uh, you know, bean counters. And in the meantime, it'll stream on Spotify and Apple Music. But what you were saying is the the royalties, it's like fractions of a penny per listen, right? Uh, well, it, they group listens together. And so you get, you, get, uh, you know, Point zero three cents per thousand streams <laughs> or something like wow. that. I don't remember. They used to, uh, you know, they used to send paper statements that were really long, and you would think because they and they documented all the different categories of airplay for every single song, 
the the basically in a nutshell they it's structured they don't put all your music together and say all your music's been streamed umpteen thousand times and therefore you get all this money they they make every single song a separate issue hmm. and there's um there's a stepped progression of of uh payouts so if you only get a few streams you get basically nothing if you get millions you get five bucks you get some i yeah i think you get probably get more than five bucks i wouldn't know but um uh you know it's not much it's not anything even compared to like airplay on um on conventional radio stations that huh. used to um used to get royalties from that that were um you know a, a lot that they 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 were not unless you had a huge hit you weren't getting rich off of that either but like college radio stations hmm. you would still get income from that uh, a lot more income than you get from streaming hmm. yeah i've heard stories about dave grohl getting checks for smells like teen spirit <laughs> in the mail you know hmm. cuz it's still on conventional radio all the time yeah sure yeah uh, yeah the conventional airplay is is uh pays a lot better if you if you have a hit that gets played on radio huh. so do you ever get checks from spotify or Apple Music or, or streaming people? Uh, it's collected by third-party agencies, huh. and I do get them, but they're they're not substantial. Huh. And that's all because the record labels or the publishing companies sign deals. They must have been horrible deals. Well, it's confusing because uh, originally, before they were these services were popular. They sold them to people uh, on the pretext that now everybody anywhere will be able to hear your music. You'll have a huge audience. Isn't that awesome? Like, we don't pay you. We're doing a service for you, right? You give us your money. I mean, your your songs, and um, which amounts to your money, but you you give us your songs and we'll make it available for anybody in the whole world to just at the click of a, a button on their computer. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and that will be great because you'll have all these new fans that come to shows and they'll buy your albums and you'll make money that way. It's like advertising in a way, but um, that didn't end up happening. What happened is people did not come to shows and did not buy the records because they could simply stream for, for nothing or next to nothing. Mm -hmm. um, and that went on for years and pretty soon people were like, oh, well, you took all our music and you're not, and you're, you're, and you're now you're a multi-million dollar company and we get nothing. So lawsuits came and they forced them to, to, to pay royalties. Um, but they're uh, not much. Yeah. And uh, so it's more than zero, which was the original model. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's still a bummer, though, because essentially the only way to make money producing music now is to tour or sell merch, right? That's it. Yeah, yeah. that's correct. Yeah. And if you can't get people to come to shows, yeah. Yep. Yeah. It's rough, man. <laughs> it's, a, it's rough. It's a bit of a hustle. Yeah. But, I mean, I'm lucky. I, I feel very lucky. Um so, you know, I'm kvetching about digital 
uh, the digital model of music distribution, which has impacted me and, and most people in quite negatively. But I still am able to tour with my bands and, and um, the numbers line up and it's okay. I have mm-hmm. an audience and I, I still, it's, a, it's amazing. You just, you get on a plane, fly the other side of the world, set up, they open the door and people come in and they want to see you. It's crazy. I can't, I almost can't even believe it sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I've performed a number of times, nowhere near as many as you, uh, nowhere near as many as like a stand up comedian or anybody who gets paid to be on stage in front of people. But the thing that I remember and the thing I hear everyone talk about is that you can't replicate that feeling of performing in front of people. And having them look at you and, and know your songs and sing along with everything, like that's that's an energy that you cannot recreate. Well, I, I mean, I'm just I'm a fan too, as as much a of a fan or more of a fan than anybody else. I go see music all the time because it's like a, to me, it's a magical experience when you when you're in the flow in a specific place and the music is happening right there, it's not, uh, it just goes by. You can't, let's replay that song, you know? It's just, it's you, you, so you're engaged. You're really engaged because it's just flowing through you. And it and a live shows, of course, it's louder and there, there's like an energy there and it's a physical experience. It's just, um, that That's still un, unmatched, I think, so. Luckily, at least, you know, some people still feel that same way and come to shows. Yeah. Yeah, I just finished reading the uh, biography of Led Zeppelin by Bob Spitz. Have you read that? No. Uh, I'd heard stories about the debauchery and, and all the stuff that those guys did. Oh, well, maybe – was that the one where they had the, the – that they had sex with the shark in the hotel room or <laughs> There's all kinds of stuff <laughs> that you're just I read like, that one. What? That one was called Hammer of the Gods, right? That, I, that was an older one. I don't know if there's a newer one. The, the Bob Spitz one just came out sometime in the uh, last year. Okay. But yeah. I had never read um, any of the other ones that I just heard stories and stuff. And, you know, I play drums and uh, have thought John Bonham was the greatest thing ever, just like a majority of drummers think. And... Reading through that book, it's pretty wild how reckless and out of control he was. I mean, the way that they paint him in that book is he was just drunk all the time. And they were doing blow. He started doing heroin in the last five, six years. But the thing that is so so powerful about them and any sort of musician who who plays together in a group is that when they came together, those four people, regardless of how fucked up they were, they created something that they couldn't even explain. And you get people that are of a like mind that understand something, like you play together and there's this other thing that happens Yeah, that yeah. you can't really explain to somebody who's never done it before. Right. And that that's what, that's, that's kind of rock and role at at its best is is like that it's not um it's what differentiates it from pop music and a lot of different other musics where it's a writer writes a song and people play the parts and a producer produces it and you have a song like with a rock band each person 
has to contribute their own energy and character to the to the to the music in a and it and it makes it in, into this, this weird sort of alchemy that um uh yeah it's not it 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 transcend you know it's like the cliche of being the the sum being great or the the total being greater than a sum of the parts yeah yeah so going back to 91 92 93 la luna pine street you, what, what, who, who were you hanging out with? Who were you playing instruments with? What bands were you starting? What was going on? Well, originally I had um, a band with, with Janet Weiss called Motorgoat. We were a trio with uh, Brad uh, Pedinoff, who, who later changed his name to Brad Mossman, uh, playing on bass. And uh, so we were kind of a little, I don't know, like a psychedelic power trio or something. Um <clears throat> And we we played for a few years, but that kind of imploded. And then Janet and I uh, were played as it just morphed ev- eventually into a duo called Quasi. So uh, Quasi was active. Uh, the, you know, the beginning of Quasi overlapped with those years, and my other band, Motorgoat, was also active during those years. And you were doing a lot of playing in Portland at those those other clubs. Yeah, there was a lot, of, and of course, uh, you know, later, uh, I, uh, I, as I mentioned, I joined Heat Miser, so I was active in in several bands. Um, but yeah, uh, La Luna was the big club. It was maybe fifteen, sixteen hundred people would be in there. Uh, but there was a lot of smaller ones, like X Ray Cafe and Satyricon, where the were the two regulars that that pretty much everybody played, and a lot of other cl- clubs kind of came and went. So what was it like playing in that scene in that that time? You know, young people going nuts and <laughs> I don't, it was, uh, you know, in retrospect, you look back and you think, oh, you know, it was a lot of fun. There was a lot of stuff happening. I was, um, uh, it was a tumultuous time for me, much of that period, <clears throat> I can't say I had, certainly I had a lot of fun, but I also, there was a lot of turmoil and I, you know, when you're in the middle of something, it looks a lot different from when you're looking back on it years later. Well, also when you're in your twenties, late twenties, it's, it just feels like your brain's in a different spot. And I always wonder why so much of the most important music that's ever been created is usually by people in their 20s. There's so much stuff that happens and it's like your brain hasn't fully developed and you're fearless and you're just coming up with wild stuff, but you're also not developed. And so you don't know how to have relationships with people and you haven't figured any of that stuff out yet. Yeah. Yeah. I think I think you're on to something. Yeah, so it's this weird mixture of endless possibility but also like I don't know what I'm doing, man. Yeah. Uh and, and a lot of it is kind of hit and miss. You don't you don't know. You, part of it is you don't you're fearless cuz you don't understand how impossible it is. Yeah. <laughs> you haven't you haven't seen that like that's just not possible. So you do it. You just j- take a flying leap. And, um, yeah, I mean, 
a lot of it's a typical syndrome for bands to be to you know their first album is great but you know or you know, their first two albums are great but after that you know uh and i think a lot of it is that you start you start being more realistic and that's kind of the kiss of death for for you know a certain type of creativity well it's also difficult to continually write quote-unquote hits and that's what a majority of people want to hear are the hits and if i don't want to speak for everybody but if like you're a, a true artist and you enjoy what you do you don't want to just write the same thing over and over every album you want to get crazy and experiment and do wild stuff that maybe doesn't appeal to everyone yeah that's true too um uh, course hits you know it it doesn't even have to be hits it's just kind of like you you go you make a record you think it's great you put it out and people like it uh and then you do another one you're like "Ah, i'm sick of that old stuff you want to change it they don't like it uh you you it wasn't even a hit you know like I, i think that the scene that i came out of was uh you know punk rock and the and the various types of music that evolved out of punk rock and it wasn't hit driven really it was more um uh I, I don't know what it was driven it was just like scene driven you had to you had to sort of get through to people that were in this certain scene you wouldn't necessarily get a hit on the radio but you would get a buzz and people would talk about you mm-hmm. uh and then yeah uh, uh, but it's as an artist, if you repeat yourself, people are like, "Yeah, you know, it's kind of like the first record, but not as good." <laughs> and if you don't do that, it's like, "I like the first record better now. I don't understand all the stuff." You know, it's it's it's. But you know, of course, it's it should be hard, really, and it should be uh, people. I, I mean, again, as a fan, as somebody in in the audience and who who goes to see shows and and listens to a lot of music. Uh, I'm I'm very picky, and people should be. Why Why would you settle for second-rate music? Yeah, yeah. You you want to be wowed. You want to feel something, and I don't know. Sometimes you, you can't always feel that. And you change. The artist changes. Your circumstances change. Like there's so many things that are moving constantly. There there's like. Like a, a perfect example for me. Do you know who the Mars Volta are? Yeah. Yeah. I saw them open, I want to say for a perfect circle. I can't, it was either them or Foo Fighters. I can't remember. But they opened for someone. They were nobody. I mean, they had been at the drive-in, but they were nobody. And I saw them perform with no idea who they were. And they completely blew my mind. And that was when I was like... 19 or 20 or whatever if i experienced that now at 38 it wouldn't have the same impact on me when i saw them at that time period i didn't have kids i didn't have a job like everything was different and so there's all these factors that go into whatever your experience is when you see something yeah certainly so yeah the audience changes in that way too and but you know, I, I it, that's interesting to me now too. I play in a couple bands, and um, my band Quasi 
never really had a huge amount of success. We had enough success to 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 keep the band going and make it interesting, which is which is great. But we never, you know, we're far from my household name, and we still play shows and people from our old audience who are now similar age as us still come out. Uh, but like I, I'm noticing younger people, um, which is interesting. They just discovered it. Well, I don't know, probably on the internet, you know, <laughs> that I've complained about so much or maybe even through their parents. Um, and it's kind of interesting. And I really like to see young people in the audience. Um, the other band I play with is with John Spencer and John with the blues explosion had uh, uh, quite a bit of success and, and built up a large audience. And um, mostly I would say our audience with John is the same audience he had with the blues explosion coming back to see him because they're, because they're just fans, but I don't notice so many young people. Um, and I think it's, I think because Quasi never had that kind of uh, popularity, people are still sort of discovering the band. Like, I never even heard of this band. What's the deal? But with John, um, people feel like they, even though I, I think the music that we're making now is different and it's a totally new band and could potentially get a new audience. I think people n feel like they know what they're going to get mm -hmm. because, uh, and they, and that's kind of what they want. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I had I've been listening to a lot of Quasi uh, the last couple weeks in preparation for you coming down here, and the thing that's so interesting to me as a musician and with the knowledge that I have of 50, 60 years of music. I, I did an episode recently where I talked about chord progressions and all the songs I listened to of yours from Quasi, the chord progressions do not go where I think they're going to go. They're very refreshing. Hmm. They're not straight. Like I can usually anticipate what is going to happen. And with your music, with Quasi, I cannot anticipate it, which was so cool. It, it's not, I'm not saying that it's bad that I couldn't anticipate it. It was just, it always went in a different direction. And I think you, you've been playing long enough and you have enough knowledge uh, with standard chord progressions and verse, chorus, verse, and all that kind of stuff. It, it felt so different to me. You think that's true? It might be. <laughs> because uh, I don't, uh, I'm not a trained musician. I, I do know standard chord progressions because they're standard. Uh -huh. um, I play a lot of stuff on the keyboard, but I just figured out how to play keys myself. I never had lessons. Um, so I'm very limited also, I don't really like keyboard music about 95% of the time. <laughs> so those two things make the keyboard-based stuff maybe different from other keyboard-based stuff. Guitar, I'm more competent on, um, but I don't even really use it anymore. 
So what instruments do you play? Uh, you know, just the standard rock instruments. I, you know, uh, drums are, I can knock a beat out for fun, but, um, you know, bass, guitar, and keys are, I, I've actually, you know, more or less professionally played. Those are your primary yeah. profession. But you also play guitar. A guitar was my original instrument, and that's probably the instrument I'm most competent on. Okay. And so in Heat Miser, you were playing bass, right? Yeah, that's correct. And then you ended up playing bass uh, for Elliot on Figure Eight, right? On a number of songs? Yeah, I I toured with Elliot. I was in all his touring bands, um, starting from when he left Heat Miser. He toured solo without a band a lot, too. Um, uh, but when he had a band, I was always playing bass. Uh, so I did that for years and I played on some recordings. Some of the songs were written on tour in the buses and the hotels. And we tracked some stuff on studios in studios on tour. Uh, so I, I was around, Elliot was just usually played the instruments himself. Yeah. Uh, from what I've read a lot of times, I mean, he would just play everything, right? Usually, yeah. yeah. But occasionally he used a drummer, and sometimes, again, these songs, if they had been worked out on tour, um, then I I had been playing the bass, and I just went in the studio and put the bass on. So were you hanging out with Larry Crane and Jackpot as well? Well, Larry, I've known, you know, my first band in San Francisco played with his band, Vomit Launch. They they were out of Chico, California, uh, but they went down to San Francisco to play pretty often, and um, I knew them since like the mid '80s, <laughs> before before either one of us moved to Portland. Wow, that was and that was kind of the main place in Portland to record, correct? Um, yeah, I don't, you know, Larry had um, again because he was a friend of mine. He he had a. Before Jackpot, he had a little studio in his basement called Laundry Rules. And one or two of my bands recorded down there. Uh, so, you know, Jackpot was a big step up. Um, I don't know if it was the main. There was other studios around, but because I was friends with him, I, that was the natural place. Mm -hmm. uh, I went to recording school. Uh, in 2005. So I have a lot of tape ops lying around. Yeah. And I mean, I, I used to know a lot more about it when I would do it. And I, you know, I had Pro Tools and a computer and I can record things, but I haven't like cleaned a a, a 24 track tape machine in yeah. 20 years. But sure. Yeah. I learned how to do all of that mm. stuff. But I could tell when I was in school in 2005 that it was on the way out. <clears throat> And I knew if I was going to do it, I would have to be an intern for five years before I could get an assistant position. So I kind of like, it was a bummer because I was in the program and I was like, this is not going to work out. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, it's a skill that, that's still useful. But uh, yeah, professional recording studio is, is, if anything, even harder than professional musician. Mm -hmm. For sure. For sure. I mean, financially. Yeah, it's so expensive to own a console and a tape machine and, and all the various mics. Yeah, a room. Yeah, just a room. Yeah. 
Yeah, it was like all the stuff that all the stuff that had been recorded was what I wanted to record. And so I I like missed everything when I went to school. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, in yeah. 2005 like it had all happened already. And I I kind of realized it halfway through and so I had to get a different job, but um yeah. the whole the whole process to me is very fascinating because you you're not really a part of the band, but you get to help them figure out like how to paint the picture, the sonic picture. And so I always appreciated as a musician, the opportunity to be able to help people. Sure. Um, That's very important. I mean, one of these, you know, we were talking about side gigs I've done production. Uh, And when I do production, I don't do engineering because that would be a, my first decision as a producer to, <laughs> to to have a better engineer than me work on the record. But like, uh, so I have, I do have experience doing it from that angle, uh, and which is different from producing your own band, which is pretty normal. Uh, but to, to like have somebody who can hover above the process and, 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 and see how the parts are moving. Yeah, you need you need an outsider with fresh ears because if you're the the musician who wrote everything, you can't necessarily see it the same way someone else will. No. I mean, and you know, that can be good or bad. It's just different. My uh, quasi tends to go even maybe alternating. Like, oh, let's do make this record ourselves. Uh, mm-hmm. Let's let's go into a studio and have somebody else help us out this time. Yeah. Uh because there, there's, there's things you, you, there's trade-offs either way. Yeah, just call it Rick Rubin. Have him sleep on the couch for a while. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> you heard stories uh, about Rick Rubin? Uh, not really. <laughs> I read the, I read the Hip Hop Family Tree, though. You mm-hmm. know that comic, mm-hmm. comic book? You should uh-uh. check it out. Is it just him? No, it's like uh, very extensively researched um, comic book about the early uh, days of hip hop and uh, you know, he features into it and towards, towards the end of the early days of hip hop. Hmm. Yeah. It's amazing how many things he's had his hand in, but I've, I've heard stories where he's just like, I don't know. He's like a mythical creature. He'll just lay on the couch and listen to some mixes for a while and then be like, yeah, change this thing, move the course there, do this, do that. And then it's like a hit. So he's got some mm. special talent, but it doesn't seem apparent just like looking at him or seeing him work. He's kind of like doing things in a magical way. I don't know. Yeah, that's nice. I, I I haven't mostly a lot of production is like uh it really is like a job, like you're you're negotiating rates rates with the studio and hours and organizing this and that, getting equipment. Uh, there's a lot of just grunt work. Mm-hmm. Rick Rubin doesn't do that. <laughs> no, no, he doesn't. He's not getting Chinese food. Uh, so in in so in the '90s, then you're doing stuff with Heat Miser. You're recording with Quasi. Um, you're you're touring with Elliot. What was it like when he just went from the guy? 
in the club with you to like, I mean, Gus Van Zant kind of blew it up, right? Yeah, again, that was a really tumultuous period in my life. Everything was topsy-turvy. Um, so there was a lot of exciting things happening, but I wasn't in a good position to appreciate it, I think, uh, because I was just so nuts. Um, and yeah, again, when you're in the middle of something, but it obviously it was a big change. We, we had, were playing little little clubs and suddenly we're in bigger clubs and then we're in these places with chandeliers and, and uh, you know, punk rockers are gone, but like sorority girls are all in the front. <laughs> like what's going on? I don't know how it, how it happens. It just, things just happen like that sometimes. It just kind of runs away, right? I guess so. Yeah. I mean, honestly, I'm more comfortable in, a, in the, in, in more of the punk rock uh, model. Yeah. But, uh, you know, it's okay. It's not about staying in your comfort zone. Yeah. But I think that is a normal thing for, if you're just a regular person, you don't know what that's like. And then all of a sudden all this attention gets thrust on you and everybody's talking about you. That, that can't be good for anybody. Yeah, well, they weren't talking about me, so I didn't. I don't know. <laughs> I, you know, I was. That wasn't my problem. Yeah. So it, it wasn't a positive experience then for you. You're just kind of dealing with your own stuff. Uh, you know, there was positive. Sure, it was positive. Uh, I learned a lot. Um, I, I. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it, it all it all worked out. So now I think it's positive. Mm -hmm. um, uh, like we were saying when I walked in, I've had just like a mellow summer, and like <laughs> I've had time to sort of look look around and be like, "Wow, you know, I this is pretty neat. I'm still playing music. I have a home. Uh, I'm, I have my health, and uh, it's everything worked out. I, I didn't." And there were a lot of times it didn't seem like that was going to be the case, you know, mm -hmm. but it did. And you still enjoy living in Portland? Yeah, I do. I'm, you know, like I say, I have a home, which is not just a house. I do live in a house, but it's a place where I feel comfortable. I got a family and um, been, I've been in the same place for, say, over 20 years, 25 uh -huh. years or something like that. So I'm uh, pretty comfortable. I was right before I came here, I was painting uh you know, the, the stairway down into the basement, still doing little, you know. I was painting my garage before I came down here. Yeah, We're exactly. both painting today. Well, yeah. So nice. The, I mean, those are nice things. Like I, uh, it's nice to have a home that you care about and like, well, I'm just going to gussy this up a little bit, you know, give it some fresh paint. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I was married before and I had three kids and, uh, things didn't work out and we got divorced and. Um, she stayed in the house and then I was in a duplex for three years and I just bought a house a year ago. So I've been completely renovating this place mm. uh, for the last year because the woman that lived there before, they built it in 68 and she and her, I think it was six kids lived in this house <laughs> yeah. and they didn't update anything. There's no garbage disposal. There's no dishwasher. Mm. Uh, well, at least they didn't wreck it, like, because sometimes people, quote, update, unquote, their house and just screw it up. Yeah, yeah. 
But um, there's something really cool about owning a place and being able to say, I'm going to paint that wall pink or I'm going to. I'm going to knock that wall down or I'm going to create, I'm going to put a new door right here. Like it's so cool to just own something and be able to just do whatever you want. Yeah. It's like home, you know, that's the thing. Mm -hmm. It's not just a house. Do you have a studio space at your house where you can? I did. Yeah. Yeah. um, um, I, unfortunately part of this painting thing is the, aftermath of major work that we had to do because of um black mold problems uh we had to have a lot of these walls torn out of our basement um including where my studio was little room uh so i had to move everything out and um i'm now so that we did the mold abatement and the moisture abatement and all this work done uh, it was a pain in the ass, but that's done. And now I still don't have a studio, but I, I had the physical space is now available to move back in. Uh-huh. And so what's next? You going to, you going to record and put something out or are you going to continue touring? Both. I mean, <clears throat> uh, Quasi has a record in the can already um, to be released. At some point, pretty soon, I think next year, Quasi is going to tour, uh, do some substantial touring. Um, uh, John Spencer and the Hitmakers, we put out a record uh, earlier this year, and we did do some touring already, but we took the summer off. Uh, but next month, start up again. So uh, I'm going to be busy for the, uh, I, I don't know, basically I had to sit down uh, a couple weeks ago and schedule out my life for approximately a year is that intimidating uh it made me nervous to do it um but it's good uh it's a it's strange it's that's a little bit of the aftermath of covid because um tours have to get uh planned so much farther in advance now um it used to be in my life was scheduled out about six months ahead of time but now it's closer to a year so, with, with the two bands that's that's also a complicating factor so for people who have never toured in a band what what are the pros and what are the cons what are the things you enjoy and what are the things you're like fuck uh, I just you know the music's the main thing for me now at this stage I'm not like career building or anything like that um and if the music is is great and the shows are great, then I'm happy as long as the numbers reach a certain bar and I'm not, you know, it's not going to be a financial disaster. Mm-hmm. But uh, over and above that is great. But most, but the music, you know, regardless of the numbers, if the music's not good, that's it's just depressing. It's not worth it. Yeah. So that's that's really just the whole thing for me. But do you ever book Kansas City and you're like, God, I hate Kansas City? Uh, no. No? I mean, there's got to be cities that are better than others, right? Yes and no. Sometimes it's surprising. You don't, uh, this last tour with the Hitmakers, uh, well, not the last one, the, the previous one, I played all kinds of, pl- I, I didn't understand the tour. I don't book the tours. Uh, I'm, 
thankfully, I'm terrible at that. So, but the agent put this tour together, and we were playing Wichita, Colorado Springs, little towns like that that I've never been before. And sometimes those are the best shows. Hmm. Yeah, because if they're smaller and there's not as many people, the people who are coming to see you really like you, right? Usually. Yeah. I mean, it's it's really hit or miss. Um, you could have a great show in in Brooklyn or not such a good show. And then go to Wichita, great, you know, it might not be good there either. Yeah. Crowds, you might say, like, why are we playing? There's nobody here in Wichita. Yeah. Um, or like, wow, Wichita, I really showed up. Uh, and I don't even remember, and after all said and done, which which cities had the good shows, which cities had the bad shows, because, I mean, why? It's all just different next time you go. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so uh, you just go and see what happens. It's a good way to look at it, because it's, it's part of it's out of your control. A lot of it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's why I'm, the music is everything, really. That's the one thing. Of course, you know, you're a band. You have bandmates. You can't control every element in the music, but you you have a lot more input uh, on the music than you do whether people show up to the club or, you know, things like that. Mm-hmm. And have you been through Europe, Japan, South Africa? Like, it, have you been all around? I'm, we've never played music in Africa. <clears throat> but yeah, Europe many times, Japan uh-huh. numerous times, Australia a couple yeah. of times. How's Australia? It's far away. <laughs> <laughs> it's really far. <laughs> uh, I, it's, I like it. Um, but uh, it's it's been it's difficult to tour there for a financial reasons. Uh, it's very expensive to, to just to get there. Uh-huh. And it's sparsely populated relative to Europe or, you know, or even the United States. So it's also difficult to make the money. You can't, in Europe, you, you drive a few hours, play another show, drive a few hours, play another show. And it's, there's only a few cities to play in Australia and it, the expenses are so high getting over there. It's a challenge. Well, and do you tour with a sound system and an engineer or do you uh, just, no, no. We you use, just rely on whatever the venue has? Well, sometimes we bring our own engineer. Um, uh, so it it, it kind of depends on the uh, on the numbers again because an engineer is an expense that sometimes just can't be paid for, mm-hmm. depending on the type of tour you're doing. Ideally, it's nice, but you always use. Uh, uh, I mean, I've never taken sound systems. We're always using, uh, you know, venues that have. The right sound system. Okay, so you guys have a writer that you send out to guarantee that you get. Whatever. Sure, yeah. there's technical writer and yeah, same and and then that gets attached to the one that tells you tells them to buy some pita and hummus and peanut butter. <laughs> yeah, make sure they read it. it. Was a classic, classic. I can't remember what band it was, but they want to make sure there was the the brown M and M's. That was Van Halen. Was it Van Halen? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I mean, sometimes that stuff's really important. I, I mean, I work in that industry, so I understand. From the touring band's perspective, <clears throat> it can be, it can make the difference between like 
a shit day and a great day. <laughs> like mm-hmm. if you show up at the club, you've been driving all day. You've dri- you've had you got you, you play late, you crash in the hotel, you get up in the morning, you drive all day. You maybe stop at a gas station and get a snack or something, but you're starved and then you then you got to get to work. Um so if there's food there, you're great because mm-hmm. you can you can you can have get some quick food and do the work and be in a good mood. If there's not, then you're cranky, you're starving, you got to start moving heavy equipment, you got to do the sound check, mm-hmm. and and you're bent out of shape because all you wanted was a snack, <laughs> and that's just too hard for yeah. you know or whatever. Yeah. Uh, so that's why uh, I think a lot of people think like, oh, these bands. You know, who do they think they are? Like, we're supposed to cater to them. They want they want salsa with their chips. Like, <laughs> oh, like, you know. But it's it's actually a big um, one of the big parts of the day for the for the band to get in there and get have a little bit of food before getting the serious work because you sometimes have very little time to eat or take care of yourself during the course. Well, of yeah, the day. for sure, and if. If all you're getting is like a hot dog from 7-Eleven before you go on to play for two hours, like that's not good for you. No. I mean, and, and, and some people will do that anyway, but I mean, I, uh, I'm i the type of person who likes to watch his health a little. Yeah. So, I mean, that's got to be pretty challenging when you're on the road, right? You can't just make a, a, a special dinner for yourself every time. No, but you figure, I mean, I've been doing this all my life. Though. Yeah. I figured it out. Yeah. That's cool. That's cool. Not all my life. I did have a childhood. <laughs> well, what, what led you in your childhood to doing what you do? Did you start playing early? Well, you know, I mean, I played, I've always loved music, listening to music, but I played trumpet in the school band, like in fourth grade up until junior high and by junior high I was just serious about rock and roll no trumpet in the rock and roll bands so I traded it for a guitar was there some seminal moment or album or band that you're like this is what I want to do uh, I don't think there was a moment it was like just a gradual I always was like I was just a nerdy shy dorky kid who just spent hours listening to the radio from as long as I can remember. And that's, it just morphed, you know, over time. Yeah. It's cool when you kind of figure out what it is. I mean, yeah. I mean, I always knew I, I, that again is also lucky from time I was like a young teenager. I just like, I'm I'm just going to be a rock and roll musician. That's all I'm going to do. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I think a lot of people think that and it doesn't work out, <laughs> but, uh, you know, for me, I was lucky. Yeah. I mean, you're creating art and getting paid for it and doing what you want to do. So that's a win-win. Yeah. I mean, again, the pay is, it's just necessary to make it work. The numbers got to line up. Yeah. I'm not so worried about it. Otherwise, um, uh, yeah, it'd be nice. You know, if you make a little bit more, then that's less of those little side hustles you got to do. Mm-hmm. But 
that goes back to what we were talking about earlier. There's a balance, right? You don't want to, you don't want to become Michael Jackson. You don't want to be Mariah Carey. Like that would, that's unmanageable. Well, yeah, I'm not in imminent danger of that. <laughs> you could be. <laughs> Anything I, can happen, but that's that's the it's thing. It's true. That's... I, I have a I have a family, like I say, and I have a home, and um, you know, I that's that's a because I have that. I think I'm I'm sane and and healthy, and mm-hmm. I can go out and tour um, pretty extensively, and 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 be fine. Mm -hmm. Before I had that, before I had that kind of stability in my life, when I was, you know, as I was referring to earlier, I was just like kind of a mess, just like back and forth, up and down, all, you know, good, bad, you know, not just like good and bad, but like fantastic, horrible, (laughs) you know, like young people are, I guess. But, uh, you know, that's, I, I value having, having a, having a home and, 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 uh, a, a place where I can just go after tour and be a be a human being. Mm-hmm. Well, in terms of the creative process, how do you typically work? Do you just kind of let things happen, or do you spend a lot of time just playing and then hoping you're going to get divine intervention? Like, how how do things work out for you? Man, it changes over time. Now, nowadays, I've just been doing it for so long. It just kind of happens. I think I ha- I've developed a sense of knowing. I get ideas all the time. Most of them are not good, but like <laughs> some of them, I think. All right, I think that's probably a legit piece of music. Um. But you kind of just got to let it happen. The main thing I do is throw out stuff that's not good. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, it's more or less getting out of way, getting mm-hmm. out of the way and letting it happen. But when you go back and listen to things you've created. No, I never do that. You don't? I try not to. No? No. You, you put it out and then you're done with it. Yeah. Yeah? Because you critique it too much? I just I I found it detrimental to the creative process. Okay. Um you listen to it a 10 billion times as you know when you're recording it. And you know, through the process of writing it, rehearsing it, getting it, you know, and then you record it and then you mix it and then you're mastering it and by that time it's just like you know every detail and I just never want to hear it again. <laughs> Occasionally I forget a song like oh yeah. Let's play this song from that album. I have to go back and listen to it. And sometimes I'm like, oh, it's pretty good. Other times it's kind of like, ah, I would have done it different. Hmm. Um, but other other than that, if there's no specific reason to listen to it, I don't. Hmm. You just kind of let it go. That's pretty cool. Well, yeah, keep moving. Yeah. Yeah, I did a show for... Uh, Tommy Thayer does this thing where he like he's the guitar. I think he's a guitarist from Kiss. Yeah, I I, I, don't, I, don't know. I only know he, he's in Kiss. Really. I forget what instrument he plays, <laughs> but he he's like friends with a bunch of the old school rockers and stuff. And he had the he had Robbie Krieger who plays guitar for the Doors. Sure, uh, and then he had Alice Cooper. And my job for the night was 
putting the lyrics for Alice Cooper on a monitor so that he could read them as they were playing through his songs. Because he, I don't know if his, he lost his, his memory or what, but he doesn't know the lyrics to his songs. And so I, I had to just put his lyrics up so he mm. could read them. Yeah. So We got a lot of songs. Yeah. Well, I mean, think about Dylan, too. How does Dylan remember anything? <clears throat> I think he forgets a lot, actually. <laughs> so That's insane, He might remember man. or maybe not. Yeah. Some of those songs have like 14 verses, man. There's yeah. no way. Yeah. Well, I mean, he's he, he's an unusual person. Yeah. Yeah. Cool, man. Well, I think that's a good spot. I appreciate you coming down and talking to me. Thank you for having me. Yeah, that was awesome.